Good morning. Can you hear me all right? If you have your Bibles, can you please turn to John chapter 13? John chapter 13. And we're going to read from uh, verses 31 to 38. So it's John 13, verses 31 to 38. We'll hear the word of the Lord. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. If you look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And if you love one another, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And I'm going to lay down my life for you. But Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It's the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Um, as Neil said, my name is John, and I'm so thankful to be able to share God's word with you today. Show of hands, how many of you guys are glad that spring is finally here? <laughs> I know it's a little rain, but I take the rain over shoveling another round of snow any single time. Who's with me? <laughs> you know, one of the great things about spring... Is, um, is that, you know, I have a chance to do things that you're not normally able to do in the wintertime. You know, for instance, the sun is out longer, and so when I'm going to work, I could you know, actually see some sunshine, right? I get to walk around, you know, our neighborhood without with my ears freezing before me, you know, all the time. And I love that it's going to be opening day in Fenway to, uh, or for the baseball season coming up. See, when we first moved to Boston, it was in the uh, fever pitch summer of 2004, you know, and as a lifelong Chicago sports fan, um, I have to admit that this has been an incredible decade, you know, for uh, Red Sox Nation. See, with each of the three World Series championships, you know, they all had sort of their unique story. Remember in 2004, they, they finally broke the curse of the Bambino, didn't they? Right? In 2007, they finally won that World Series you know, at Fenway Park. And last year, I think last year was actually the most intriguing for me um, because it was such an unlikely group to actually win, wasn't it? So if you recall in the year 2012, two years ago, uh, the Red Sox had finished dead last um, under the manager who uh, shall not be named. And thankfully only lasted about one year. And so going into 2013, nobody expected them to do well at all. In fact, in fact, no one expected them to win the division, win the World Series, you know, probably maybe finish just above last place at best. Right? But as the season progressed, um, a couple of things started to happen. You know, one, people started to notice that they uh, you know, won without nearly the talent that they once had, they normally had in the past. But secondly, what they lacked for in talent, they uh, made up for in facial hair. You see, when Red Sox manager John Farrell was asked, you know, what he thought about sort of this Duck Dynasty style that his players started to, started to address or started to come with, he, he said that basically he liked it because it was sort of a way for their team to bond. And so last year, a lot of people happened to focus on, on, on their beards, 
And, and, and they thought it was sort of a nice little gimmick, you know? See, but I think that misses the point if that's all you thought that it was. You see, if you were to talk to everyone in the clubhouse, you know, they would tell you it was never just about the beards. It was always about what the beards represented. The beards represented their commitment to one another and their unified commitment as a team, right? The idea is that when people saw those beards, see, it was to let everybody know that winning was first and looking pretty was second. And after they won it all, <laughs> the beards, the, the beards uh, became their team signature that, some, that symbolized something great, right? A World Series champion. And now when people see the Red Sox beards, you know, it reminds them of that team from last year. I want to bring up the Harbor logo. See, when you think about our church, the Harbor, what comes to mind? Does it remind you of perhaps a talented worship team or, or some inspiring teaching or perhaps an incredible kids program that your, that your kids go to? You know, if Jesus were to come down and, and look at our church, what do you think he'll have in mind when he thinks about us? Perhaps more importantly, what do you think he wants to think about? What do you think that he really wants to see? You see, Jesus cares about his church. You know, he, he cares about what the church symbolizes and what people think about it. He cares because he wants his church to be something great. Right? He wants his church to be a beacon of great love and, 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 and he has this great longing to redeem and to restore a lost and dying world. And so with that in mind, I'd like to explore that this morning. You know, if you have your Bibles, you know, stay with me at John chapter 13. If you got your, or if you have your Bible app, just, stay, just go back to John chapter 13. See, as um, Neil had mentioned, or, or I think John had mentioned, we're in the middle of a series called Entrusted and Empowered. We've been looking at how much God has entrusted us as his sons and daughters to use our gifts for his kingdom and for his purposes. Uh, To set the stage for John chapter 13, this was the last night that Jesus was going to be with his disciples, you know, before he gets tried, um, convicted, and crucified on the cross. And Jesus knows this. He actually knows this. And so this is sort of his last shot, his last final night with his disciples. And so what he does, he sort of lays it all out there, right? He just pours himself out. And he is kind of sharing this vision of what he's entrusting and empowering his disciples to do after he's gone. And in John 13, verses 34 and 35, we read that it's a new command I give you. Love one another, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my, my disciples, if you love one another. You see, what Jesus is saying is that when people think about the church, the first thing that comes to mind, you know, shouldn't be the the size of the budget. In fact, it shouldn't be the location of the building or or the number of butts that are sitting in the pews. Rather, he wants his disciples to be known for the amount of love that they have for each other. See, in Romans 12, verse 10, Paul writes Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You see, if, Christian, if you know, Christianity was some sort of competition, which it isn't, but, but if it was, see, most of us would compare ourselves using you know, different types of measuring sticks, like, like how often do we go to church, right? Or, or how many you know, 
ministries are we volunteering in? Or, or, or how often do I read in the Bible and pray? So what, what Jesus is saying is that those are all the wrong scorecards to be looking at. What we really should be thinking about is, how am I loving my brother and sister in Christ? And is there a way that I could do more? See, to take it a step further, loving, loving each other wasn't some you know, sort of optional add-on, right? Some feature that, 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 that we add on to our Christian life. But it's something at the very heart of the faith. See, in John 13, 35, notice that in verse 35, he says that it's by your love people will know that you're his disciples. The theme was so ingrained in the Apostle John's mind that he begins to expand this thought in his letters of 1 and 2 John. You know, and so in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, you know, he writes to make sure that everyone understands the importance of this command. And he says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother and sister are still in darkness. See, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them that will make them stumble. If anyone who, but if anyone who hates a brother and sister is in darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they're going because darkness has blinded them. Let's be honest. See, most of us probably read a passage like that, and, and we probably don't flinch because... You know, loving each other is sort of one of those Christian cliches, isn't it? Right? I mean, within Christianity, we have sort of lots of different theologies and traditions and denominations that we kind of bicker over and battle over. But I guarantee you, there's not going to be one anti-love movement. Right? No one's down with love. And, And so the challenge for us this morning is not whether or not we should love each other. I think we could all agree upon that. See, but... The challenge really, I think what Jesus is trying to present to us is how far are we willing to go in order to love? See, and I think the two challenges is this, is that when you love like Jesus, you have to be willing to give up anything. Secondly, if you want to love like Jesus, you have to be willing to love anyone. You have to be willing to give up anything. You have to be willing to love anyone. And so first, I just want to talk a little bit about what does it mean to be willing to give up anything. You know, one of the interesting things about this passage is that, um, you know, Jesus calls this a, uh, a new command, you know. But, but if you're sort of a Bible scholar or if you kind of read, you know, have heard previous sermons, you know, this command actually is not new, per se. In fact, it's a very old Testament command of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so loving people in itself, there's nothing new about that at all. And so the question is, you know, what actually makes this new? You see, the newness of this command is in the phrase, as I have loved you. See, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that you need to love one another. How much do you need to love one another? As much as I have loved you. And so how did Jesus love? How did Jesus love? And I think in the beginning part of John 13, he sort of models for that, models us for that, um, you know, as he washes his disciples' feet. And I'm going to quickly just go through that, you know, and it's basically an act of humble service, right? So in in chapter 13, verses 4 to 5, you know, we read that Jesus rose, you know, from the supper and, and he 
put aside, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Right? And then he poured water into a basin and, and began washing his disciples' feet. And with a towel, he began to wipe it. And after he had done this, in verses 14 and 15, he starts to talk about this a little bit. And he says, you know, I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. And so you ought to wash one another's feet. See, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You see, what Jesus is saying is that just as I humbled myself for you, you need to humble yourself to others. Just as I poured my life out into you, you need to pour your life out into others, right? Just as I sacrificed for you, you need to sacrifice yourself for others. And so how much did Jesus sacrifice? You see, the scriptures tell us that he gave it all away, laid it all out there. See, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, he tells us that by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who have been made holy. See, Jesus came into this world and laid down his life for this world so that we can be redeemed and restored. That's what he came here to do. Yet at the same time, Jesus still calls us to have that sort of love for our brothers and sisters. Right? In John 15, verses 12 through 13, you know, he, said, he kind of repeats this command. He says, you know, this is my command to love one another as I have loved you. And then he continues on and says, greater love has no one than this, that they lay down one's life for a friend. Uh, think about that for a minute, you know? I mean, does, does Jesus really mean that? Lay down your life for a friend? I mean, isn't that just a bit of an exaggeration? See, the answer, though, is I think Jesus is deadly serious. You see, there's nothing in the scriptures that actually imply that this was a, some sort of, you know, figurative, you know, type of speech at all. And if you didn't mean it, mean it figuratively, you know, the early church actually didn't get the memo. You see, in the second and third century during the Roman Empire, see, there were various plagues that, that knocked out city after city after city with the disease. And the Romans, what they would do is they would often throw their infected members of their families into the streets while they were still alive because they didn't want to get infected themselves, right? While others, you know, as a way to kind of avoid getting it, they just left the cities all together. But do you know who stayed? Do you know who stayed in these cities? It was the church. See, it was the church who stayed and looked after each other. It was the church who stayed and cared for the sick and the needy and the dying. It was the church who stayed and risked contracting the plague themselves. And many of them did, and they also died. See, ultimately, it was the church that stayed so they could show the outrageous love of God to everyone that was there so the world can see how great God is. See, this type of love was boundless. Right? It, it was limitless. It was, it was so deep. This is why the church fathers, like Tertullian, you know, said the church was known around the empire as those who loved each other. You know, so when people thought of the church, when they thought of the church, they were known as people that loved each other because they were willing to die for each other. See, this is the same type of signature. This is the same sort of representation that Jesus wants for our church today. That command hasn't changed. 
And even today, there are still thousands of Christians who are martyred around the world and countless others who are persecuted for their faith each and every day. As they show, you know, love to the, to the least and, and the lost and the lonely. Each and every day. And, and so why this is why, you know, they, they sort of need our prayers, right? And, and for some of you, perhaps God might be calling you to, to go into those type of places, you know? And, and if it's you, I encourage you, just don't sit around and, you know, wait for, you know, something to happen. I mean, if God's calling you to go, just go. Just go. You know, even if it's going to be hard. For the rest of us, though, you know, here in America, I mean, what does this mean? You know, we're not getting persecuted for our faith nearly as much. We're not, we're not necessarily dying for our faith. And so, and so what does this mean? What, what can this look like here at the harbor? Well, I'm still a relative new uh, harborite. And, um, you know, and, and, but just one of the things I love about this community is just how well you guys do love each other and even the short time that I've been here. You see, about a month ago, I um, went to India for work. And uh, you know, I was going to Bangalore to visit one of our harborites, uh, Brianna, who was serving there for the past seven months. And, and I got in contact with their team leader, Bill, and I just wanted to visit them and to see you know, some of the things that they were doing. And, and, and so the Sunday before the trip, I was here at church and just asked a couple people, hey, you know, I don't know them. Is there anything I could bring over? Uh, just sort of as a way to bless them from here. Well, well somehow, you know, word got out. And, and um, you know, right after service, uh, a couple of uh, Brianna's friends quartered me and, and just said, hey, look, I heard you're going to India. Can we give her uh, a care package? And I said, yeah, sure, you know, not a problem. You know, I'm, I'm going by myself. I'm only going to take one bag. And so just feel free to give me whatever you want, and I'll, and I'll just bring it over. Well, that day, a bunch of her friends, you know, went to Trader Joe's. And, uh, and, and stuffed a bunch of stuff, got a bunch of other things, and they literally stuffed this entire suitcase <laughs> full of stuff from Trader Joe's with snacks and gifts, memorabilia, and notes and stuff. And, and, so, and so actually, while I was there, you know, I, I visited Bill, and, and so I was doing this. I kind of, you know, on a weekend, I kind of had the thing going, and I just walked in like this. And, he, and Bill looked at me and said, uh, kind of had this puzzled look on his face, and he said, um, you know, John, did you uh, happen to check out of your hotel thinking that I might, he, I might, have, I might be an uninvited guest? But, <laughs> but actually, I just told him, no, no, no. no actually, this is all for Brianna, you know. And, and, and so, so Brianna had no idea that, we were, that I was coming, with, you know, bringing this stuff. And so, um, and so literally when she saw the suitcase, she, she screamed, right? She was so excited to see it. I think I have a picture of her opening it up. And one by one, it kind of felt like Santa Claus. You know, she opened it up, and she just one by one, you know, she, she was green from ear to ear. She looked at you know, each of the things that you guys had given her. You know, one of the things that um, stuck out with me, though, during that time is that, uh, you know, Bill had said, you know, in all those years, you know, there's never been a, a, a member of their team that had received an entire suitcase, you know, full of stuff. You know, it actually impressed them. It, they actually took notice of that, you know. I mean, your love for Brianna was, was evident, you know, to everyone that was there, you know, and so they visibly saw sort of your Harvard love stuffed into 3,000 cubic inches of, you know, Trader Joe's goodness, right? But, 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 but the reality is, is that this is just one of many ways, you know, that I've seen that you guys serve and love each other here in this community, right? Even in the short time that I've been here, you know, I've seen that, you know, many, so many intentional acts of kindness, right, within our community, like, like, like supporting families when they're sick, Taking meals, you know, to a baby 
uh, to a family that just had a baby, right? Inviting, inviting college students to your home after church so they could have a home-cooked meal. See, when you love like this and you serve like that, you know, people will notice. This is the type of thing of how you become known to be a church that loves each other as Jesus has loved you. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, I sort of feel like church is sometimes like a, a football game. What I mean by that is we have sort of 22 people that are running around that could use a little rest. And there are about 220 people that can use a little exercise. <laughs> you see, what Jesus is calling us to do is not just be spectators watching, right? But he wants us to be participants, right? He wants us to participate in God's work. And, and, and one of the ways we can do that is to serve one another. You know, and so perhaps you're relatively new. And, and you still, you know, feel like that spectator and, and you're not sure what to do, you know. And, and, you know, don't worry about it. I think you're not alone. There's probably a lot of people that, that feel like that around here in this community. Um, I, one quick suggestion, one easy suggestion is, is to start somewhere, right, and start small. You know, the key is just to start and do something. It, it could be a, something as simple as, as making, you know, making a meal to one of the one million new baby, you know, families that are here, you know, and the couples, because they could certainly use some help. You know, it could be sacrificing some time and volunteering once a month to one of our Sunday service teams. Woo-hoo. Yeah, I'm on the fourth week service team. We're the best. So if you want to join us, let me know. <laughs> and it could also be just opening your home to a faith group. You know, something simple, right? The, the point is, is you need to start. But, but beyond the ministries here at the church, I, I, you know, I also sense that God might be calling some of you to serve in ways far beyond your own capacity. So you could show the extent of Christ's love to another brother or sister. I think of one of our friends who lives here in the Boston area. Um, You know, she became a surrogate mother for another couple, another couple in their church. See, she and her family already had three children of their own, and so they had no plans of having any more. But she also knew that the other couple had been trying to have children, I think maybe over 10 years, but they were just unsuccessful, and they were just frustrated and didn't know what to do. And so one day, our friend just felt led to, to offer, basically, her healthy womb to his family and became a, her surrogate mother, became a surrogate mother. Now, she did this despite the objections from many of her friends and family, right? I mean, they couldn't fathom, why would you put your health at risk like this? You're crazy, But despite those objections, she still went on with it. And just like her other three pregnancies, you know, she went through the same chemical and physiological changes, you know, during each of the three trimesters. She still went through the same series of, of, you know, checkups and ultrasounds and appointments, but this time she did it with the other couple with them. And just like her other three pregnancies, you know, she, she still went through the same hours of labor and the same painful delivery. But this time, when the baby was delivered, she didn't have a chance to hold the baby in her arms. But rather, it went straight to his new family, who was more than overjoyed with this miracle. You see, when you love like that, here's the thing. People might not understand. They're going to notice. When you love like that, people will know that you're a disciple of Christ. And when they think of the church, that's how you become known as people that love. 
See, to love like Jesus is to be willing to give up anything. But secondly, to love like Jesus, we have to be willing to love anyone. See, growing up, um, you know, I went to church uh, with my family. You know, we're an immigrant family, so I went to a Korean church. And, and so uh, most of our f- uh, friends were from that church that we went to. You know, we, we went on vacations together. We, we shared meals together. You know, we, uh, we even joined a family bowling league together on Sundays. I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys, but I don't know if, we, I was the only family I knew that eat, actually all four of us had our own bowling ball and bowling shoes. So I don't know if that's strange, but that was just, you know, that was our family. <laughs> See, but we even helped each other you know, during, during difficult times. When my father had lost a job, um, you know, a friend from our church had hired him in his heating and cooling business until um, my dad was able to save enough money for, for his own restaurant. You know, uh, so we were part of this kind of close-lit community, and, and we had this sense that we were doing life together. See, but one day, all of that changed. See, there, there was a season in my parents' life when um, they were going, for, going through a very difficult time in their marriage. In fact, in fact I wasn't even sure if they were going to make it. Um, but, you know, somehow, you know, uh, during that season, you know, very few people in the church uh, reached out to them. In fact, most of them just sort of kept their distance, and they, and they sort of didn't want to get involved. And whenever my parents would see some of their old friends, they, they somehow felt this sort of weight of, of gossip or, or judgment or, or condemnation hanging over them, you know, because their personal lives began to kind of spread around the rumor mill. Sadly, they no longer felt welcomed and accepted in the community they invested so many years of their life to. And eventually, they both, you know, frankly had enough. And so they, they dropped out of church and church life altogether. I would imagine, you know, with a you know, group this big, that at least some of you can probably relate at some level and, and maybe have a similar story yourself. You know, perhaps it's you or someone that you know that invested so much of your time, right, and your energy and relationships in a, in a church body that ultimately ended. And you or that person, you know, either felt burned or, or abused, perhaps even tossed aside. And you saw firsthand the church full of its faults, flaws, and failures. You know, sometimes the hardest thing about loving people is, frankly, people aren't always that lovable, right? You know, one of the interesting things about this passage that we've read in John 13 is that John only mentions two people, really by name, out besides himself. Only two people, two disciples. First, it was Judas who left right after the meal to betray Jesus. And second, it was Peter, who, had, who, who was the brazen disciple who proudly declared that, he, that, that he, you know, his allegiance to Jesus only to deny him just a few hours later. And so you could, if you were to kind of put yourself in John's shoes and, and in his perspective, you know, as he's sort of looking at the scene, right? There you have Jesus serving his disciples right, and washing their feet. And then moments later, Jesus tells his disciples to to love one another as I have loved you. All the while, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him and Peter was going to reject him. I've got to tell you the truth. If I knew that you were going to stab me in the back, I probably am not going to go over to your house the next day and wash your shoes, you know, or clean your car. But notice that Jesus still washed his disciples' feet, even knowing all that, 
See, here's the biggest kicker. In the passage, and I just kind of noticed this, actually, as I was studying this passage in Matthew 26, that even as Judas had the audacity to, to walk up to Jesus and betray him by, you know, by kissing him in the face, notice how Jesus addresses him. See, he doesn't say, he doesn't brush him aside, right, in anger or, or hurt or disgust, you know, which is probably something I would have done, you know. Nor did he call him, you know, you liar, you traitor, what's wrong with you? He didn't do any of those things. But rather, he addresses Judas meekly and mildly. And he holds out his hand and says, friend. And right after that, Jesus was seized and captured. As I thought about that for that moment, it was everything that was crying within me. It was saying, no, Jesus, this is just wrong. This is wrong. I mean, this is the guy that you spent three years of your life with. right? He was one of your 12 disciples. He was the guy that handled your money, and he just sold you out for 30 pieces of silver. Why are you calling him your friend? Right? He's not your friend. A, a friend would never do something like that to you. Come on, Jesus with the program. I mean, it, it was just, it, it bothered me so much because I was like, oh, oh you know, it's so frustrating. And as I was kind of wrestling through that, it, it sort of dawned on me, you know, that, that, that no matter how much Judas was going to reject Jesus, see, Jesus had no intention of ever rejecting Judas. Jesus was always going to leave room, the door wide open for repentance and forgiveness and for reconciliation to take place. See, Jesus was willing to love anyone, even those who didn't love him back. And Jesus calls us to do the same thing because that's the way that repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation could take place. We see that with Peter, actually. See, Peter, you read in the Gospels that uh, Peter, you know, after Jesus was captured, that Peter did, in fact, deny him three times. You see, what might have made Peter's rejection a little more kind of painful or sting a little bit more was that Peter was actually in his inner circle, right? His big three, you know? He was with him in the highest of highs and he was with him in the lowest of lows. And so, but knowing that, you know, Peter, Jesus had to take Peter down this path, down this journey from, from failure to forgiveness. And most of us perhaps would have just stopped right there. Hey, I've forgiven you. Let's just cross our ways, you know, whatever. But Jesus didn't stop there, actually. He didn't stop. He kept on going. Rather, he want, Jesus wanted Peter to be fully reconciled and restored to him. He went all the way, even to the point, even to the painful places. See, in John 21, verse 15, you know, we start to see this restoration process take place. And so after eating breakfast, you know, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, son of, son of, God, son of, um, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus asks him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds a second time, Lord, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And then Jesus asked Peter a third time, paralleling the number of times that Peter rejected him. 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? And by now, Peter was hurt. Right? I mean, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You kind of see what Jesus is doing here? See, he's, you know, he's here taking Peter back to sort of his lowest moment of his life. Right? The, the point where he rejected Jesus, his friend and his master, just a few days earlier. You know, it t- took him to this point of failure and sin. And on the one hand, it, I'll be honest, it, it feels a little cruel, doesn't it? it? It almost feels like he's sort of taking that knife and just kind of turning it a bit, isn't he? But here's the thing. Jesus is turning that knife. See, but with Jesus, it's the knife of a surgeon. It's not the knife of a thief. He's turning that knife because he wants us to face our sin and our personal demons. And it's at that point we can know the joy of true forgiveness and true restoration. In John 1.14, it tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Right? Truth is that Jesus didn't want Peter to forget about that night until he faced up to his sin and failure. See, but the grace is that in that pain, there is joy and restoration waiting on the other side. See, notice that Jesus never asked Peter, Peter, why did you fail me? He never said, hey, Peter, let's uh, create a three-step program so you don't do this again. You see, Jesus didn't come with his plan, right? But he came for his heart. Jesus didn't just want to stir up pain, but he wanted to stir up Peter's passion for him. Jesus loved Peter, even though he failed. And he calls us to love others, even when people fail us. The reality is, I'm sure for those of you who have gone through a very painful experience, the reality is, it's not easy, is it? It's so much easier said than done. In fact, personally, I've just been wrestling through this all week of what does this mean as it relates to my own circumstance and my own past. You know, loving each other the way that Christ has loved us is hard. In fact, it's impossible to do. I think this is why Jesus, just a few chapters later in John chapter 15, you know, tells us that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide, abide, abide in my love. See, if you want to have the power to love the way that Christ has loved us, then we need to abide in the love of the Father, the love of the Son. Because to, to be able to love like that, I mean, it's a supernatural work, isn't it? Because there's nothing in our flesh, there's nothing in our bodies that's going to want to do something like that. In fact, it's impossible because we're just, it almost repulses us because this seems wrong, which is why we need to be connected with the power source. You know, as I end, um, you know, I, I imagine that you know, many of us are probably at different stages um, in this. Perhaps I imagine that some of you 
are the ones that messed up relationships, you know, with, with, with believers and friends and, and, and yet a past we're not particularly proud of. Um, and, and right now, you know, perhaps you've been kind of feeling this, this, this sense of guilt and shame with you for a very long time. You know, for others, perhaps you're in that state of you're the ones that got messed up, right, by, by the church. There are people that you had trusted and that you loved, and right now you might be feeling raw, just thinking, oh, Lord, I don't want to go there. And, you know, as we kind of close, you know, I, I just want to give you guys a moment just to pray a little bit. And I know normally we have people that, that kind of come up here and are willing to pray for you. You know, perhaps, you know, this would be a good time to actually be prayed for about those things and have someone to, to join with you. You know, as, as, as you try to wrestle through this together with God. You see, Jesus cares deeply about the harbor. He cares deeply about this community. You know, he longs for this community to be known as a place where we love each other so much, right? That we're willing to do anything and willing to love anyone so that we can love one another just as Christ loved us. And so I just want to pray for us as we close that we can be that type of community. And so can we just pray for a moment? Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, you've given us a hard command, God. And we know, Lord, that in our flesh, if we really understand what it means to be able to love one another, it's hard, it's difficult, it's impossible. Lord, we need your spirit, we need your... We need your love to fill us today. And for those of us, God, that are feeling convicted perhaps of our sin or or convicted because of some of the things that we wish we would have done differently, God, I just pray, Lord, that you also give them an assurance that as they go through this painful process, that restoration and forgiveness is possible at the other end. Lord, just speak to us now. Let this community be a place, even when it's hard, that we can love each other just as you have loved us because that's your desire that's what you want our church to be about we thank you and praise you for this body we pray all these things in your son's name amen